Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. It feels that just for a moment, we can take time to catch a breath and look at some of the more normal political issues, such as Brexit and also the Lib Dem leadership. With that in mind, we are absolutely delighted to welcome a very special guest who we've long been interested in getting on this podcast. She's former minister, former MP for North Norfolk, Sir Norman Lamb. Norman, welcome. Please introduce yourself and tell us what you've been up to since leaving <laughs> Parliament. Thanks very much indeed for having me and I'm looking forward to it. So I was the Member of Parliament for North Norfolk for 18 and a half years. I won my seat in 2001, the end of an 11-year effort to break down a 15,500 Conservative majority. Tragedy is now that there's a Conservative majority of about 13,500 again, and it makes me weep because by 2010, we'd got our majority up to 11,600, and we were building what felt at the time like quite a Lib Dem stronghold. But the, the combination of coalition and then Brexit destroyed all of that. So uh, since leaving, I have become the chair of the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, which is a mental health trust serving four boroughs in South East London. I'm also chair of the Children and Young People's Mental Health Coalition. I chair an advisory board for a digital mental health company called Zenzo. And I've also set up a mental health fund along with my wife, uh, Mary, in Norfolk. And we put in some money ourselves to get it started. We're now up to over 150,000, but we want to grow it to a much greater total so that we can then have lasting impact in my county. But I think I reached the conclusion that the last year's general election was the right time to leave. We'll come on to probably discuss that. I have no regrets about leaving. I loved the job, but it was the right time to go. And I'm now really involved and committed on an issue that I care an awful lot about. Fantastic. Good to see that there is life after Parliament. <laughs> Absolutely. So many. Reclaim my weekends as well. <laughs> yeah. So we've spoken a great deal about Brexit on this podcast and indeed the tribalism around Brexit inspired the original blog, podcast and our name of No Man's Land. And throughout the arguments over Brexit, we have been very uneasy about the idea of a second referendum or overturning the result of the first referendum. We're also very concerned primarily about the inability to seek and find compromise on the issue, either in Parliament or in the wider country. So for that reason, we're very interested when you took a different stance to many Remainers. So would you mind talking us through your stance on Brexit and your thinking behind it? To start with, I, I was a Remainer and believed that it was the wrong decision to leave. But it's important to understand where I came from on that, because before I was ever elected to Parliament, I had stood up, it now seems rather bravely, in front of a Lib Dem conference and said that, and I remember the words I used, when it comes to Europe, we lose our critical faculties. I'd never understood a Liberal Party, which is a sort of reform party, self-evidently, I think, that believes in reform and in challenging centres of power, challenging centralisation and lack of accountability. I could never understand why we were so uncritically pro-European. I believed that you could support the 
European project, the, the idea of countries coming together in the aftermath of conflict and trying to build a better future. You could believe in that, but be critical of the way it had evolved. And um, we seemed unable to make that distinction. And, and a series of leaders, many of whom I, was, I liked and was close to, I felt sort of epitomised that sense of uncritical support. And, and I, I talked to several of them about it. And the, the view, I remember Paddy Ashton saying to me that we've got to be seen to be simply pro-European. That's all we can get across. We, we can't get into nuance uh, about our criticisms of the model. But I found it bizarre that a, a party that was constantly challenging power domestically became extraordinarily mute, to use a new uh, word from the virtual world that we now live in, when it came to the EU. So I was always a critical pro-European. And when it came then to the referendum, after some thought, I concluded that I should think because you can be critical of the way something has evolved, but choose not to just abandon it. But I felt that in making the case for staying, we should be very clear about the problems with it, but why uh, it was important to stay and fight for change. And then in the aftermath of losing the referendum, I felt uncomfortable from the very start in, in simply opposing the outcome of the referendum uh, because we'd, we'd said in the referendum campaign, and Nick had said it, Nick Clegg had said it, that th this is a vote that determines our country's future. And then after that, we said, well, actually didn't. We can unravel it and start again. So I was always minded to look for an outcome that respected the referendum result, but that didn't destroy the economy, that maintained close relations, that in a way left the political project, but not the economic project. I felt that some sort of compromise position such as Norway holds allowed us to have a sort of seat at the table to allow us to participate in debate about how Europe could be reformed in the future, to be much more flexible, much more dynamic, to allow all members of the European economic area to have a vote on rules that apply to the European economic area. That's a perfectly reasonable pro proposition. And, and so when it came to those indicative votes, and I'd been one of a group of MPs across party, Yvette Cooper, Oliver Letwin, uh, Nick Bowles, and others who had managed to grab control of the order paper. We got a day when we could debate potential options for resolving the impasse in Parliament. We had indicative votes at the end of that day, and I talked to colleagues. I, I lobbied many of my colleagues individually uh, in my office to persuade them that we should be voting for compromise. You know, we'd secured this opportunity of votes on compromise. And I was then faced by one colleague after another committing to voting against any compromise. And even the leadership who had indicated a determination or a desire to vote for compromise ended up abstaining. And so all of my colleagues, apart from Tim Farron on one vote on Norway, all of my colleagues 
either abstained or voted against every compromise position. And at that moment, I felt totally isolated and felt that my future in the parliamentary party was effectively at an end. I said that I was considering resignation from the whip. I got very close to it. Uh, the only reason I stayed was that I didn't want to damage my local party in North Norfolk because we were clearly potentially in the run-up to a general election. And I've got colleagues in my old constituency that I'm very close to. And I, the last thing I wanted to do was to cause them damage. That was the only thing that kept me in. But I, I was dismayed and very angry at the Parliamentary Party's refusal to compromise at that point. And, and I felt that a Liberal Democrat Party had become an extremist party over this issue. And I, I ended up feeling that I had no longer any love or association with that party. What a fantastic inside of view of the recent history of our attempt to deal with such an important political issue. One thing that we've talked about during, or what we did talk about during the impasse over Brexit, was it was a hugely high-stakes gamble, with one side, both sides playing for winner takes all, and one side going to make a huge mistake in losing everything. Whether that was Theresa May's deal, the Norway option, or some other sort of compromise. So, Steve, can we now say that it was the Remainers, the uh, in Norman's words, the extremists on that side, who've made the huge mistake? Just before I come to that, I thought I wanted to say that very similar to Norman, I had the feeling of, of a bit of dismay at um, being someone who worked for the Liberal Democrats and then seeing them take an extreme and uncompromising position on Brexit. So I imagine, yes, you felt norm, um, isolated Norman, but I'm sure there were people uh, like ourselves who felt, felt similar. On this question of whether Remain has made a big mistake, I mean, it's easy. It's easy to say in hindsight that they did because we now know the outcome. That, that caveat given, I think going back to the time when, when it was possible in Parliament to find a compromise, it did look like there were reasons at the time where Remainers had, had a, hard, a hard battle to either A, get a referendum through Parliament and then possibly to win it. So I think, yes, I think you can say in hindsight, it was a huge mistake and it looked potentially like it at the time. I'm afraid it's turned out to be that way. And I'm conscious now that the headlines are starting to creep back into the news about will we end up anyway with no deal or, or, or not much of a deal in, in six months' time. So I do think it is a rather depressing watch for Remainers at the moment. Norman, would you say that it's fair that it, wasn't, it doesn't just look a bad decision in hindsight, but look a bad decision at the time, not only because of the risk of a high-stakes gamble where both sides are playing for complete victory and the uh, complete defeat of the opponent but that compromise in and of itself would have been a good approach yeah I, totally uh, and I, I describe it as a historic miscalculation by ardent remainers so there were 60 or so Labour MPs who were as uncompromising and then of course there was this independent group that broke away, people that broke away from the Labour Party and the Conservative Party and there was a degree of, and this is you know the grubby, in my view, the grubby side of politics which is 
unattractive. There was a degree to which, and I remember a colleague, I won't say who it was, but a colleague said to me as I was trying to persuade them uh, to vote for compromise, we've got to think about positioning, uh, was what they said. And in other words, there was a competition between the Lib Dems and the newly formed at that time uh, independent group to be more pure in our pro-Europeanism. And I was just left thinking, where does the national interest come into this? Given the stakes for the country, I thought that was pretty shocking. Just think about how the votes turned out that day. We lost Customs Union by four votes, with 60 Labour MPs roughly voting against, and several Lib Dems voting against, the rest abstaining. And we lost Norway by, I think, about 21 votes. So in other words, it was perfectly winnable. Now, those votes weren't binding, but just think about how the government would have handled that. Of course, in the aftermath of those votes, Theresa May was able to say, look, Parliament can't vote for anything. They're against something, but they're not in favour of anything. And, and so therefore we plough on. Well, she would have been denied that had Parliament actually voted for something. And it was within our grasp. That's what deeply frustrates me still over this issue. And here's the thing, that the uncompromising position that we and others took at that time, in my very clear view, created absolutely the conditions for Boris Johnson to prevail at the election. Because the country was horrified, sick and tired of this sort of impasse in Parliament. They heard nothing on the news every day but Brexit. Many people, many ordinary people who have other interests in their lives were utterly sick of it. And they felt that their leaders were failing the country and rightly so. And so when the general election arrived and a party leader, Boris Johnson, was able to say, however misleading this might be, let's get it done. There was no competition as to who would win that election. It was the two competing messages were let's get it done or let's have more delay and let's debate this for another two or three years. And there was never going to be any other any other winner but Boris Johnson and his right wing populists. And so I really feel that we that Lib Dems and others of similar mind in the Labour Party and those rebels from the Conservative Party have some culpability here. And on your central point, is it only with the benefit of hindsight we can see this? No, you know, I was saying it at the time, and it's not just the sort of the politics of this that was so frustrating. You know, had we voted for Norway, it would have probably split the Conservative Party because there were a large number of Conservatives who voted in favour of that. Instead, now we have a Conservative Party with a very substantial majority. But it was the most important thing is it was the principle of the thing. We ought to have favoured compromise. We ought to have favoured an attempt to find common ground to bring the country back together again. And we could have done that, in my view, with something akin to Norway, uh, which would have been vastly better than the situation that we're now in. Thanks, Norman. I don't think you'll find too much disagreement here with anything that you said. 
So, Steve, what should the Remain movement, if you can call it that, now become, if anything? Well, I think as you apply in your question, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a question about whether it should become anything at this time. And certainly at this time, we're in the, the middle or the end, or we're not sure of the pandemic and the rest. But actually answering it, might be worth thinking back to uh, a point in time, I think Norman may have been reflecting on uh, a few minutes ago, when right after the referendum, the sort of what was left of the Remain campaign seemed to take a slightly different stance than they ended up taking on whether there should be a reversal to Brexit or a second referendum. And I, I believe that uh, Open Britain started off by being a, a movement calling for a soft Brexit a situation where we'd be, yes, outside the EU formally, but closer within its orbit. And if anything, and I don't know when the right time for this to pick up necessarily is, if anything, perhaps that is what they've got left. We have to see what deal the government ends up with, if any deal, in six months' time. But there might be space for people to say, well, maybe we should be in the European arrest warrant or other things like that that are beneficial to us. That perhaps is the most I, would, I can see the uh, Remain movement doing at the moment. Uh, thanks, Steve. Okay, so Norman, just to close the Brexit section of this <laughs> podcast, uh, if only we could close the Brexit question more broadly, but for now, how would you work on bringing people together? Well, I mean, that it perhaps turns on some of the things that we may come on to discuss about the sort of politics that we should be promoting, but I think uh, I always found that people uh, responded quite positively to a type of politics that was rational and gentler, but still based on some clear moral positions, some clear principles, strongly articulated. There is no inconsistency between having very clear and strong values and being willing to compromise to a achieve as much as you can rather than be completely irrelevant on the outside and you know that that's and that's why I ultimately I supported being in the coalition and and I think we achieved some positive things in the coalition whilst also making some significant mistakes but that's the sort of politics that I advocate and and would still uh, advocate and certainly in my in the context of my constituency that's the way I won over such large numbers of people who would otherwise have voted Conservative and indeed won over many people who would otherwise have voted Labour. You can win people to your cause by, by being reasonable, principled and passionate. And I think that's the sort of politics that I would always advocate. Well, that seems a perfect time to move on to talk about the Lib Dems. Now, we're also very keen to talk to you about the, the future of your party, given our interest in the centre ground and the fact that there is actually a leadership election underway. So, Norman, then Steve, where are the Lib Dems now and how have they got to be where they are now? Well, first of all, a, an open disclosure, which I think is important for you to understand. I am no longer a member of the party. I chose not to make a song and dance about it. I chose not to storm out and make a fuss, but I allowed my membership to lapse this year. That's in part because I'm now the chair of an NHS foundation trust, and I felt that that was appropriate. But I also, as I, I think I probably indicated, tragically really, fell out of love with 
the party that I'd been very proud to represent for 18 and a half years. Indeed, I stood for the leadership of that party in 2015 and, and got the support of, what, 46% of the membership who voted. So it's, I find it very sad that I'm now on the outside. And, you know, there are, there are lots of people who I admire and will remain friends with within the party, but I, can, I no longer associate myself, I'm afraid, with what the party has become. Part of the problem, and I don't want to just keep dragging on, on about Brexit, but in the immediate aftermath of the referendum, Tim Farron, the position that he took as the leader was to simply say, we oppose Brexit, we don't accept the referendum result, we, we seek to overturn it. So that brought into the party large numbers of people who were passionate pro-Europeans, not necessarily, I suspect, liberal, liberal Democrats, but they joined the anti-Brexit party in, in essence. And so the party, I think, changed quite significantly in the period since the referendum uh, took place. And, and so that's where I find myself. It doesn't stop me from giving a view about where the party is at and what it should do. I've already said in another interview that I, I think it will be quite a struggle for the party to rebuild relevance in the current context. We have a Conservative government with a significant majority, and now we have a, a much more effective Labour leader as the leader of the opposition. It's quite possible that the party could regain some seats at the next election in the same way as we did in 1997, sort of on the back of a surge towards Labour. So if the public turn against Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, and there's no certainty that that will happen, I hope that that happens. But if they do turn against the Conservatives, then in seats where Labour can't win, we could pick up seats. But a route back to relevance looks hard at the moment, I have to say. And we have to, the party has to work out what it stands for now in the post-Brexit world. And it has to think very hard about all those people who loyally supported the party in various parts of the country, who really turned against the party in the post-Brexit referendum period. I felt that we, by the last election, we'd become the party of a sort of subset of the metropolitan elite. And the best way in which that was epitomised was looking at the seats that we were targeting. We were targeting places like Epsom in Surrey, Stockbroker Belt, Westminster, very wealthy Westminster. Uh, not entirely wealthy, it's got a poor element as well, but a, a conservative seat. And there were lots of seats in, in and around London that we poured vast resources into in pursuit of the votes of the wealthy metropolitan elite. And that was not the party that I stood for and fought for. I was always interested in trying to give a voice to those people who had no voice, to represent the people who lose out in our system, to give a voice to the voiceless, to fight for justice and equality for those people who, who are failed by our very centralised uh, system, 
And I think our party had lost touch with that completely. And I wanted to, you know, I would find it attractive if it was again a radical liberal party, not a left-wing party, but one that was genuinely reformist, that absolutely fought for a fairer, more equal division of resources, but sought to empower people and communities. That's what, for me, liberalism is about, giving power to people rather than to centralised institutions. Well, thanks. That's a, a fantastic sort of insight. It does raise the question then of what the point of the Lib Dems is. And maybe, sort of, Steve, you could give some insights here as well. So what does, and this is to both of you, but maybe starting with Steve. So what does the experience of the coalition era tell us about what the purpose of the Lib Dems is? And whether their members, and I mean a party is to some extent the embodiment of its members, so are its members, and therefore the party, more comfortable as a sort of opposition movement? Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in first. And once again, I'll say that I'm rather following um, Norman's lead in the sense that I also have uh, lost touch and not and become not a member of the party due to the reasons he articulated very well there uh, around around becoming a kind of anti-Brexit party rather than a moderate centre-ground party. Uh, on, on this question of sort of what are the Lib Dems for now and what were they for, I was giving some thought earlier and it seems to me that the kind of the central pitch, at least the one that's put to voters, has changed quite a bit over the last few years. So I, I recall back in the sort of 2005 election, I think I thought and I think many, many others thought of the Lib Dems as kind of a, a liberal left party under Charles Kennedy and at some point between then over the 2010 period to 2015, it became more like a split the difference type party. I remember very well being involved in the 2015 election campaign and the, um, the slogan on the, on the manifesto launch being a sort of Wizard of Oz analogy where you were sort of, would give a heart to the Conservatives and a head to Labour. And that was a very different pitch to the sort of more pure liberal pitch that perhaps Charles Kennedy had. And then that sort of suddenly morphed a few years later into, it's probably unfair to say a single issue, party but perhaps came across that way in terms of being an anti-Brexit movement and so back to the question of what the Lib Dems are for it's it's moved around a lot it, you could forgive voters for being a little bit a little bit lost I don't think I have a very good answer for where it, it, it goes now because having gone so far to being an anti-Brexit movement it it would seem even more confusing to to its brand I think to to move away from that very very sharply I'm afraid I haven't got a better answer than that, but I think that's a maybe a very potted summary of how they've got to here. So, Norman, what's your take on the sort of the purpose of your former party, given that they've tried being in government and arguably haven't recovered, and maybe some people feel more comfortable out of government? So, is the purpose of the Lib Dems to be a sort of a pressure group, a conscience, similar to the Steve's point about giving a heart to the right and a head to the left. So what do you think is the purpose? Is it a party of government, a party of coalition government, a party of opposition on the back benches and forcing the country? I think it's fair to say from um, what you've said previously that you don't think the Lib Dems should exist as a party of either revoke or rejoin. So what do you think they're for? <laughs> yeah, I would be horrified if it determined now to fight for revoke and rejoin I, I just think there has to be an acceptance of where we're at i think we need to be def well 
the party needs to define a sort of a compelling, attractive vision for what they want the country to be, something that excites people and that is compelling, that convinces people that it's something worth voting for. And it, it will take a long time, I think, to redefine it in, in that way. But there needs to be a sort of consistency of approach. And there, there are very many really important liberal causes to fight. And it's really important that the country has a liberal party. And if we look at the record of the Labour Party, the Labour Party can't be relied upon to be liberal in its, instinct, in its instincts. The Blair government, in many ways, on law and justice issues, was right of centre. And there had to be a party that was able to challenge and criticise and hold to account a government that took that uh, position. But if you define liberalism in terms of power and, and how we distribute power to people and to communities, uh, there are some very potentially compelling positions that a Liberal Party can take, uh, which can push that agenda as an opposition party, but in my view, absolutely be willing to go into government again. Now, the problem we have is that, you know, across Europe with proportional systems, the idea of a Liberal Party going into government with a bigger party of the right or the left is very normal and no one really balks at that idea. It's very contrary to the political culture in this country, which of course is in part formed by the type of voting system that we have. And I always felt through the coalition that we were involved in a massive experiment as to whether a small party could survive and prosper in coalition under a first-past-the-post system. And I think, you know, the conclusion I reached is that you can't. But still, if we were confronted by a situation where it was in the national interest to go into government and to seek to implement liberal values in government, I still think you should do that. And I actually, you know, there were, if you remember the immediate aftermath of the 2015 election where Nick gave that emotional and powerful speech, an awful lot of people joined immediately after that. And these were people who actually thought the Lib Dems had been treated badly in that election after that, that period in government and wanted to help rebuild. So there, there is a market i think for a uh, rational moderate but also radical party of liberalism in this country that is able and willing to go into government thanks so let's just talk briefly to close this sort of section on how a a movement of the center and of moderate politics and a party of the center and of moderate yet possibly radical politics so we can take them together or separately or both so how does a moderate political movement get cut through how does it get anyone to care in the age of social media identity politics and as i say that can go either for the lib dems a potential other liberal party or just general 
sort of moderate politics. How do you get people to care? Well, I think, first of all, something you don't do is what we did in the aftermath of the referendum is to take a, a sort of an extreme position because we managed to alienate. You know, what I found so distressing in North Norfolk, knocking on doors during the election campaign, because I went out and fought for my successor to get elected, uh, even though I was disenchanted with the party. I wanted her to win against the Tory. But it was just so distressing coming across household after household of people who had backed me loyally through 18, 20, 25 years turning against us and just saying, I can't vote for you this time. I just fundamentally disagree with what your party uh, stand, stands for uh, on Brexit. And that, so that was just deeply distressing. So you've got to be a party that that is principled but reasonable and, and moderate and rational and you know that's how I built my power base as it were in North Norfolk and I don't think it's ludicrous to suggest that building a power base in a constituency and winning over people who would otherwise have voted Conservative or Labour I think that you could potentially translate that model onto a wider canvas and say that type of approach, that type of politics is capable of winning support across the country. Actually, when it comes down to it, and, and we're seeing a bit of a sense of that in America now, when it comes down to it, there are a lot of people out there, you know, people like you two, who, who felt that there was no one representing that middle ground where you you might have very strong values but you believe it's right to try to find common ground and there's a lot of people there who want to support that type of politics and i think if you have an effective leader who can articulate that style of politics you can win friends you can win support and you know, if you take a scenario at the next election of, let's just imagine for a moment, the public turning against the Conservatives, you know, the Conservative government has a monumental task ahead of it in the aftermath of COVID with a, an economy that has been massively damaged and with unemployment rates likely to rise very substantially. Many people would take the view that they haven't handled the COVID crisis well. I take that view, even though I've stepped back from party politics as a private citizen, I take that view. And it's quite possible to imagine that at the next election, the country turns against these people and, and the sort of sense of right wing populism. And if that is the case, then in many places, they will be voting for the Labour Party under Keir Starmer. But in many other places where Labour stands no chance of winning, a coherent, radical, liberal, rational party led with somewhat by someone who comes across as a reasonable person, who sort of represents that common ground in British politics of people who reject extremes, that party could really prosper. And that's what I think the party should be doing. Whether it does it, I have my doubts. I, I suppose, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth here, but it might also, given that you've talked about the importance of being principled, 
be somewhat unwise and inconsistent to call yourself a Liberal Party and then make the centrepiece of your offer overturning a democratic exercise. It comes across to a lot of people as being neither Liberal nor Democratic to seek to overturn the result of the referendum. And I think, I hope I'm not being unfair in saying that you'd, you'd say that that's fair and indeed sort of quite inconsistent. So, Steve, do you have anything to add in terms of sort of the ability of a political movement to get people to care? Yeah, yeah, a couple of bits. Um, but I'll also say I, I very much agree with everything Norman just said. The thing I would add, and we've possibly been a bit of a broken record on some of this stuff on this podcast, is that in the sort of culture we're now in, where politics seems at least more emotional and identity based than before, having a story from the kind of unifying center that, that A, is a story you tell people about the country and has an emotional resonance, I think is maybe one of the great challenges we're in. And, and also we often say that articulating what a sort of center ground on the identity politics sort of liberal versus authoritarian divide, I think might be the, the thing, that's the thing I would, I would really like to see a party do. And we've, for example, talked about the role in in sort of unifying messages around patriotism and things around that. I do think it will take a rather articulate leader to pull that off. But that, that is what I'm hoping for, whether it's from the Liberal Democrats or, or from any other force in British politics. Thanks. So, Steve, just to finish a little bit on, on the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems starts at the last election and has been described as woke and revoke. What does that mean? Uh, this kind of line, woke and revoke, I, I heard a couple of times recently, and I wasn't quite sure what that meant in terms of campaign strategy. But I think what it refers to primarily is um, Joe Swinson having a number of conversations, particularly one with uh, Justin Webb on BBC, uh, about transgender rights um, that uh, sort of played in the media a lot. I don't know whether that was, as it was said it was, a deliberate strategy to sort of win over metropolitan voters. What I, what I would add, though, to that is that there does seem to be potentially down the line, I mean, I haven't seen this come up too much yet, a tension between being a kind of big L liberal party, um, that, that as well as standing up, for, for, up against social injustices and people who are discriminated against, also stands up for a plurality of views, a sort of broad church, uh, and is a little bit reluctant on to, to engage in some of the things that we might call cancel culture and things. So I do think there's a tension between being a sort of a capital L liberal party and some of the more hyper-progressive elements that look to shut down debate. I'm not really sure we've seen that too front and centre in the Lib Dems yet, with the caveat that I haven't been involved for uh, a year or two. But I think that's the kind of background to the question of how woke should the Lib Dems be. Thanks. And I, I suppose it can make sense from a political strategy point of view if the your overriding strategy is to seek to maximise the votes of the, the remainers, that you would then seek to sort of buttress that support with other political stances that might be similar and in the same sort of political vein to those who were more likely to, or who did not only vote remain, but were then the strongest, most vocal sort of advocates for cancelling the referendum result revoking or in fact perhaps potentially rejoining but Norman as we've got you here it would be uh, remiss of us not to have a former leadership contender on and ask them and indeed you for your 
sort of the lessons of your experience and any advice that you would give to the current contenders to the crown. So an open book really in terms of your experience as a leadership contender and what you've learned from it. I will just say very quickly on the previous discussion you've had just now that it is, I think, important to pick your battles to be effective as a political movement. You know, I took a stand on the legalisation of cannabis and there are many people in the party who were resistant to that or in the leadership of the party who were resistant to that position. But, you know, I think I think it was potentially actually popular. I think it struck a chord with younger voters. It was uh, rational. It was evidence-based. And, and look at what happened to the Liberal Party in Canada. They got elected on a manifesto that had that clear commitment and then they implemented it and the world hasn't caved in. So, you know, I think you can make stands on what are seen as sometimes radical issues, but are clear, strong liberal issues that, you know, give people an idea and impression of what the party's about. And, you know, I was standing in a constituency in 2017, which you wouldn't say was a hotbed of liberalism. It's quite an elderly constituency. I was open and clear that I supported legalization of cannabis and I won my seat in 2017. So that's an example of, of, of a sort of policy that I think they should champion and where they can be out on their own against the other two parties on an issue where now public opinion is strongly in favour of reform. In, in terms of advice, I'm sure they will not uh, welcome it from someone who's left the party, but I would just say be true to yourself. You know, Get rid of the endless political calculation, the, the positioning that I talked about earlier and come across as an authentic person, a genuine authentic person who can potentially appeal to a wide swathe of people of reasonable opinion in this country. And too often people go for cheap ideas that, uh, I remember there was a moment when we all had to walk out of parliament because we funny enough this was over i think a rejection of our attempt to get a referendum on eu membership and i think it was ed davey who was the shadow foreign secretary at the time and we all had to walk out it's a sort of it's a cheap shot and i don't think it really convinces anybody so i I just think you should be true to yourself articulate your vision for what the country should be like and try to build a compelling picture of the sort of country we liberals would build. And in that way, you can start to win new followers. And it's only through clarity and authenticity and decency and principle that you're going to be able to make a breakthrough. Fantastic. Thank you. So just to close the whole discussion, we haven't talked in a great deal about COVID, but given your expertise and experience in health, what are your thoughts on how this government has handled COVID? So it might be worth just setting out what experience and expertise you have in health and therefore what your thoughts are on how the government has handled COVID. Well, I was the Lib Dem health spokesperson, or we called the rather grandly Shadow Secretary of State from 2006 or seven in health through to the general election. I then returned to health in 2012 as Minister of State in the Department of Health. I was there through to 2015, the general election. And then I 
returned to being the shadow spokesperson after the 2015 election. And I've built a bit of a reputation, I suppose, as a campaigner for mental health, to get mental health onto the agenda, to get equal treatment for people with mental ill health, also for those with learning disability or, or autistic people. And so I've had quite a significant involvement in the NHS and the NHS debate over many years, uh, and indeed on social care as well, which is part of my brief as minister. I don't think this crisis has been well handled by this government. I, I think in a way, populist governments around the world haven't fared very well during this period. Think about Brazil, think about the United States and think about the United Kingdom. What people hanker after at times of crisis is basic competence. And if you look at you know, Germany, for example, Angela Merkel, she's a conservative, she, I don't share her politics, but there's just a sort of sense of someone who is calmly competent and it's an undervalued asset, I think. And if you think about our lateness in going into lockdown, uh, we were late by at least a week. And of course, that allowed the virus to rage across the country at a rapid and escalating rate. We were unprepared on PPE, you know, many people were hopelessly underprotected doing vital jobs. I talked to a young GP in the Northeast who was completely unprotected and ended up becoming quite ill. People in social care completely unprotected on PPE. The failure to test people being discharged from hospital and placed into care homes, again, was a big mistake. And the whole issue of testing around the world, countries that really got a grip on wide scale population testing so that you could track where the virus was going and then trace people as quickly as possible. They're the countries that handled this well. And we didn't do that. And it's been a bit chaotic, a great reliance on an app that hasn't delivered as had been hoped. So, you know, for all of those reasons, I think that if there is to be a public inquiry, it will demonstrate the failures of uh, this period of time. My call now to the government is that we know that there's going to be a psychological fallout from this crisis. And it's really important that we plan now to meet that psychological fallout as effectively as possible. And that's what I've called on the government to do. Thank you so much for the time, Norman. This has been an absolutely fascinating insight from someone with your experience of all of these issues. So thank you very much for your time and coming on. Steve, thanks so much for your time as always. And to our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. And thank you for listening and goodbye.